this week on the Back Table Podcast. I'm doing this case, and I put this big occlusion balloon in, and he goes, well, pull really hard. And I pulled really hard, and he was standing right behind me, and I pulled an entire ream of blood and blood clot out that went flying over my shoulder all over Joseph's tie and shirt. <laughs> I was mortified. <laughs> I was just like, what have I done? And he just looked at me very pleasantly said, well, let's look and see how it turned out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Back Table Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Now, a brief message from our sponsor. This discussion is supported by Philips Image Guided Therapy Devices Academy, a resource aimed at improving patient outcomes with awareness, education, and optimized solutions through diagnosis, treatment, and follow-up. Their goal is to support healthcare professionals through the clinical pathway which takes their interest in Philips' best-in-class technology and translates it to applicable skills for appropriate clinical applications. They continue to deliver strategic, valuable educational programs that meet the evolving needs of their customers. Philips Image Guided Therapy Devices Academy will give you access to upcoming live courses led by leaders in the field, self-paced distance learnings, on-demand case reviews, personalized peer-to-peer training, and comprehensive educational opportunities. From basic to advanced educational opportunities, they are dedicated to helping you achieve long-term success as well as competence and confidence with the Philips Peripheral Device Portfolio. They look forward to working with you on your developmental journey. If you have any questions, please contact them at philips.pvmeded at philips.com. Again, that's philips.pvmeded at philips.com. Do you own an office-based lab or cardiovascular ambulatory surgery center? Then you need NextLab. NextLab is a suite of solutions to support your medical practice and help you find avenues of opportunity. NextLab gives you critical tools and resources to increase efficiencies so you can have the business you always wanted. NextLab's sole purpose is to give you the connections and equipment you need to start strong or stay successful. Whether you have an established lab or are thinking about opening one, Boston Scientific can help. Visit bostonscientific.com slash next lab. Now, back to the episode. Welcome to Backtable Podcast. I'm your host, Isabel Newton, and it is my pleasure to introduce my friend and colleague, Dr. Richard Saxon. He's an IR with the San Diego Imaging Medical Group, which services North County San Diego, including the Tri-City and Palomar Healthcare Districts. He did his undergraduate training at UC Berkeley, graduating with a certificate of distinction as one of the top 11 graduates in his year, and got his MD from UCLA and went on for his radiology residency at UCSF. He completed his IR fellowship at the Daughter Institute at OHSU in 1993, a really vibrant time, and he stayed on as assistant professor until 1997 when he moved to San Diego to begin his private practice, where he also served as clinical assistant professor at UCSD. Dr. Saxon has been extremely involved in clinical research, including the development and use of stent grafts for arterial applications. He did groundbreaking bench research on the use of stent grafts for tips, which we're going to explore today. And he performed the first human tips stent grafts using handmade devices while at the Daughter Institute, as well as helping to design and develop the Viator device. He was on the steering committee for and participated in Zilver PTX drug-eluting stent trial and was site PI on the Lutonix DCB trial. He is currently very active in the endovascular therapy of all kinds, including the treatment of acute stroke and limb ischemia. 
Dr. Saxon has lectured worldwide on the results of his clinical research, and he's a really engaging speaker if you haven't heard him. So welcome, Dr. Saxon. That is the uh, longest introduction I've ever had over all of these years. So uh, that was a pleasure. It's interesting to look back after uh, realizing that I'm no longer in the first half of my career. It's a pleasure to be here with Isabel, who's become a friend and a colleague over the years. Likewise. So the kind of brain child for this podcast came from the fact that you and I uh, were seated next to each other at the CARVE meeting, and we were just chatting about the beginnings of TIPS. And TIPS as a procedure for me has always just marveled at you know, me. It's been one of the most exciting kind of things to watch develop even now and to learn about the history of it. And so you were telling some stories that I was like, oh, this has to be shared with the greater IR community. So you were a trainee when TIPS was taking off. What was that like? Yeah, you know, it's always interesting to look back at what inspires your career early on. I mean, just as an aside, the reason I became an interventionalist was the first patient I had on medicine was bleeding to death from Osler Weber Rondu at the time, HHT, and went off from Cedars Hospital to Harbor Hospital, where Grant Hayashima did one of the first internal maxillary embolizations, and the patient came back cured. And I was that convinced me I wanted to be an interventional radiologist. So that's how I got here. But I was a resident at UCSF sort of during the initial uses of wall stents for tips. So the history goes back, you know, my mentor, Joe Rush, sort of invented the procedure through serendipity. So back in 1969, I believe, his second year in the U.S., after he'd done a year with daughter, he did a year of research at UCLA um, in what later would become my grandfather's research institute and was trying to do transjugular cholangiography and kept getting into the portal vein and realized he was onto something um, and then started trying to do it in, in animals with little tubes that didn't stay open. And then uh, shortly thereafter, Colapinto tried to do some in people without stents and those all immediately occluded. So the real heyday started after Guts Richter did the first ones with Julio Palmas using a metal stent, the balloon expandable Palmas stent. And then when the flexible wall stent came out for biliary uses, that's when it really took off. And that's when I was a resident. So I was a resident at uh, UCSF during that period, sort of from 87 to 92. And they were doing a lot of tips uh, with wall stents, collecting the initial clinical data, showing it worked, but they all had a lot of trouble. And so when I got to be, after my residency, I got up to Daughter, actually the first fellow when Fred Keller went back to the Daughter Institute and uh, had the endowed department and became the separate department, we were doing three, four tips revisions a day on occluded tips. And so it, it was really interesting to be doing all these procedures, but coming back and seeing that they were failing a lot of the time in mostly in the tract. And that's sort of what inspired me to get involved in the animal work on that subject. So you did some seminal work on improving the primary patency of tips, and you published your work in JVIR in 96 and 97 and 99 with some of the the main players, you know, Ushida, Keller, Resch, and others. Tell me about that study and how it changed practice. Yeah, so Joseph was an amazing mentor. You know, he was always encouraging and driving the research side of things, and Fred Keller was a great teacher. And I had the opportunity to work in the lab there with Barry Uchida, who ran the lab. And we had Hans Timmerman there, who used to work for Cook, actually was one of the first guys who made Z-stents by hand. And so we had a stent builder in the lab. We had a machine shop. And first, we knew there were problems in the tract, and we knew that those caused more symptomatic problems. We published that work early on when I was up there in clinical cases. But then uh, Mike Dake came up. And with a guy named Andy Craig, who's an early interventionalist uh, inventor, 
And they had tried to do some percutaneous femoral popliteal bypasses by attaching a palmaz stent on one end of the graft material and a palmaz stent on the other end of the graft material and just relining the SFA, which kind of failed because there was no support all along the way. But it inspired me because I was like, well, why don't we do this with tips? And I turned to Joseph and he looked at me like, of course, <laughs> you know, we should do this. And so, and, and we'd been working with a swine model that they had developed in mini swine. And so we started making some handmade stent grafts and we actually did a randomized comparison in the swine of just wall stents versus handmade sort of expanded PTFE. We would get this PTFE and rip the outer lining off of this graft and sort of expand it and put it onto little stents that Hans would build. And we put those into swine and, and sort of looked at the results and they were dramatically better. And at the same time, we were using this little double occlusion balloon device to look at the tract. So we would blow up these two occlusion balloons at one end of the tract and the other end of the tract and inject x-ray dye. And we would sometimes see like one of the main bile ducts had been transected by the tips. And that's where they occluded. And so we had animal work on that where we, we were able to harvest those those animals and look at those biliary injuries and how thrombogenic they might be. And they did cause a lot of metaplasia and animal hyperplasia and thrombus formation. So we became pretty convinced that that was the problem. And we had to line these shunts somehow to get them to stay open. And that was sort of the start of it. And we actually started looking at those things in patients as well, using those double occlusion balloons. And one of my most inspiring cases that sort of convinced me that we had to do something was this wonderful woman with Bud Chiari that we put a tips in. And she came back nine times occluded over the course of like a year and a half with recurrent bleeding. And every time the tract was occluded and we balloon it open. And, and then we, I finally put one of those balloons in her and saw a bile duct injury. We had her on heparin and Coumadin both, uh, and she'd reocclude. And that was the first patient we actually treated with a stent graft, first human patient we treated. And she stayed open for like almost a year after we put the stent graft in. So clearly we knew we were onto something. And that's sort of how it evolved. That's such a remarkable story. I mean, it has so many elements that I think are emblematic of what it is like to be an IR the arts and crafts part that I'm going to want to ask you a little more about. And then also just the tenacity. I mean, the fact that these patients kept going down. Why do you think you continued to get referrals for these patients? Well, you know, at that time, there was no banding. There was only sclerotherapy. And these patients rebled a lot after sclerotherapy. So, and it was becoming clear that TIPS was safer than a surgical portocable shunt. And nobody really wanted to do surgical portal cable shunts on anybody who might have a liver transplant because it really messed up getting a liver transplant. And there was a big transplant program at UCSF and at Daughter. And so the transplant surgeons were very supportive, right? They wanted these things to work so that they wouldn't have to deal with an operated field trying to do a liver transplant. So I think that kept it going and, and you know, it became our research to follow up these patients and to follow up venograms on them and, and track what was going on. And that was became a big part of what we were trying to improve while I was at Daughter for those years. That's so cool. You know, in some of the publications that I hope we will link to this podcast, there are figures that show the stent graphs that you guys made and, you know, that little catheter that has the two um, latex balloons on them that you're alluding to that you use to see if there are filling bile ducts that might have gotten transected. And I have been to the daughter and seen what looks like your grandpa's garage, you know, uh, the which is the lab. I mean, it is just, it's remarkable because it's very advanced, but it's also just incredibly humbling because it shows people using 
sometimes adapting objects that we already have or bringing in new new materials to try to solve problems. And what I wonder is, from the perspective of a trainee, did this seem cutting edge or did it seem rudimentary? Like, what was your response when you were seeing these things being made and then introduced into patients? Well, you know, it was a different time. I think we were less concerned about medical legal issues, about patent issues, about the financial issues involved. Honestly, the first series of patients we did, we didn't even get IRB approval. I can look back on it now and say it's past the time where I'm going to get in trouble for saying that, but we didn't even think about it. You know, we were just trying to make things better and it was easier to tinker. Also, it was lower hanging fruit. I think now, you know, you want to make something stay open better. You're doing a $200 million drug eluting stent development program. It's a lot harder to do that than to take, I think our initial group of patients was like eight patients, and we were able to demonstrate almost a statistically significant benefit using their, those patients as their own controls in patency. So it was, I think, a little easier to find something really impactful to do. And there was the fact that it was the daughter, right? I'd never met Charles' daughter. He died before I got there. But, you know, the stories are legion of him bringing in saran wrap when it came out and running around saying, what can we do with this? And and so tinkering was sort of the way there. Dan Cope here at Penn and, and Hans being in the lab, you could go and say, well, we need to do something to make this so we can localize the portal vein without covering it because we don't want to cover the portal vein. So how are we going to do that? You know, we need to like a little uncovered stent on the front end of this homemade device so we can find the portal vein. And so he sort of developed an unconstrained Z-stent on the front end that was tied to this little metal scaffolding where the graft was. And we could sort of partially deploy that, pull it back a little bit. And it really became the inspiration for everything that followed with the development of the Viator. So, you know, it's a concerted effort of a lot of people, but it just seemed natural at the daughter. I mean, we were building homemade stent grafts that were being used for Dake's initial work and helping with that uh, in the thoracic aorta and we did some initial homemade stent grafts on the thoracic aorta. I mean, I even did homemade AAA stent grafts when I got into private practice down in San Diego. So, you know, it was a little bit of a different time where you could do that stuff and feel comfortable about it. It was because there were no alternatives for patients who were going to die otherwise. Now there's more alternatives, I think. What Was it an exciting time for you or did it just seem like this is what training is because you didn't know any different? Oh, no, it was it was exciting. I mean, I you know, when we when we started figuring out that the bio leaks were a big deal, the tract was a big deal, you know, and I talked to Jean LaBerge at UCSF, who was one of my mentors when I was a resident, and she'd be like, I think you're onto something. And talk to Zeev Haskell and say, no, that's baloney, um, you know, and we'd go back and forth because Zeev trained a year ahead of me at UCSF. I mean, we're friends and known each other a long time. So, you know, we went back and forth and got into this competition about who was going to get this done first, you know, and, um, you know, there's great stories about how we were using this micro swine that only grew to about 90 pounds and, and Zeev started doing it all on his own at Penn, which, you know, I had a lot of help. I didn't have to bring the animals in and anesthetize them and put them out. And Zeev didn't know that we were using micro swine. So he used young swine that grew up to 300 pounds when he wanted to do their follow-up venograms. And he, he'd tell me stories about how he had to wrestle them and sedate them. And what, what, what did we do for that? And I was like, what kind of swine are you using? <laughs> you know, I mean, it was a, it was a very exciting time. Yeah, no, it was clear that, you know, we were doing stuff that was going to matter. 
and that made it exciting. That That's so inspiring. You know, there was a story that you told me when we were at dinner, a funny story about Zeev, young Zeev, when I happened to know he was called Skippy when he was at UCSF. I don't know if you feel comfortable sharing that story. I didn't tell her, Zeev. <laughs> I, have my, I have my own sources and um, I have a lot of respect um, for, for Dr. Haskell. Oh, but right now we're talking about the early days. So for all of you trainees out there, this is what it felt like back then, which just to me is just so inspiring. So if you feel like you can share that story, I think we would love to hear it. It was about um, your competition with him at the beginning. Well, yeah, I mean, we were, he was working with encapsulated palmod stents um, and with support from J&J, I believe. I'm not sure who the support was from. And we were doing these handmade things. And it was a very collegial, but very competitive thing because we were both trying to make our early careers right? And to make a mark. And Joe Rush was a really sweet, wonderful man, but he was also a very competitive man. <laughs> um, you know, he, the, the stories about the daughter hike around the mountain are all because Ernie Ring claimed to have won a race around the mountain when Gene LeBurge took off at a race and the first hike around the mountain to commemorate Joseph's 65th birthday. And it became a four-person race because Joseph couldn't stand the fact that somebody said we'd lost a race, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, you, you know, you want a race, you'll have a race, you know, it was sort of that kind of thing. So, yeah, we were all competitive. Uh, but at the same time, we were sort of working, you know, we knew we were working towards the same goal. I think the design, you know, for example, of the Viator, my memory of it is, you know, we sort of took some of what we were doing with the handmade stuff and that became the Viator design that Dake and I and Zeev sort of napkined out on a napkin and gave to Gore with the help of a very brilliant PhD at Gore named Mike Vonish. And we can talk about that a little later in this. But yeah, it, he, you know, he was trying really hard to, to get this stuff first. And, and, and so was I. And it became a lot easier when I left academics to go into private practice because I wanted to do peripheral vascular work and wasn't going to do much of that at daughter at the time. And uh, so I branched off into that and he took over as the PI of the Viator trial and and the competition sort of disappeared. <laughs> but yeah, he, yeah, he was uh, very aggressive about wanting it all back in those days. But you can see that in, in Dr. Haskell's personality. Uh, nobody without a competitive spirit and a drive to do more than anybody could run the JVIR for 10 years or whatever he ran it for uh, as an editor. And, you know, I mean, Z, when he was a resident, was like, I'm going to, I want to be the next Ernie Ring, you know, when he left to go to Penn. So he had those goals early on. And so that's, I think, why he got the name sort of zippy, you know, a little overly aggressive, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, made him a great interventionalist and a real contributor to the field. So. There's something to be said for that. Yeah, we, we need a little bit, a few zippies around to move the field forward. So absolutely. Yeah. Thanks to him and thanks to you. You know, you told me a little bit about how you collaborated uh, with industry to develop the Viator. And you mentioned your serendipitous meeting of Mike Vonish. Can you tell me that story? Yeah. It's an interesting story about sort of how industry and interventionalists work together, you know, because that's something that has become a big part of my career, sort of trying to help industry improve things. So, you know, in typical fashion, when I gave the, the results of that swine trial, the random trial of swine stent grafts versus swine wall stents. It was the last session of the last day of the SIR. 
you know, research session that there were like eight people in the audience because everybody was going home and nobody was going to the swine research session, right? And I would give this talk and this person in the audience starts raising his hand and asking all these questions and comes after me up to me afterwards. And I'm like, who are you? You know, and this is, a, again, the chance meeting, chance concatenation of things, the serendipity of things. His name was Mike Vonish, and he had actually done his PhD with Vogelzang in the Northwest Lab as an engineer. And he worked, basically became the skunk works for Gore developing things. And that's where the Viator came from because he came up to me and said, you know, hey, I think we're thinking about doing something with this. And then uh, the design came from Dake and Zeev and I, and, and then they developed that. But, you know, there was no thought at the time ever at the daughter about patenting things, right? The daughter had given everything to Bill Cook and John Abley, and, and it was really just about making things better. And, that, and that's really where the Viator came from. Um, and then, then the animal work. So I just think it's an example of how we can work with industry to really improve healthcare. In telling this story about how you guys worked with industry, you acknowledged that in those days, you know, there was no patenting. There was um, kind of this sense of we're doing what's best for patients. Obviously, we've evolved away from that. I just wanted to hear what your thoughts were surrounding how that has evolved. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I think there were people who were cognizant of that. Julio Palma is working with Johnson & Johnson. Clearly, that device was patented. And and I think as Stanford and Silicon Valley started to grow and Stanford's research program started to grow, I think a lot more people around the country became more and more cognizant of the finances of this can help institutions and individuals as opposed to just businesses. And sharing it is probably a good thing. So I, I don't have a problem with it evolving away from the daughter mold at the time, which was, we don't even think about that. We're just developing things for the good of patient care. I think it can go too far, certainly, but I do think that that model of a more entrepreneurial spirit, shall we say, has led to a lot of development over the years and a lot of money coming into device development and, and the field. So, And as things got more and more expensive, I don't think you can expect people to fund them without possibility of return. So I, I, I'm not opposed to that evolution, but it has definitely been an evolution. And it's interesting how things, I mean, a, a story that doesn't relate entirely to tips, but my relationship with Gore led to me picking up the Viabon trial halfway through and sort of as an example of how things go in fits and starts and can completely fail except for a few people deciding not to let them fail. I mean, the Viabon device, the initial trial was designed by vascular surgeons with exercise ABIs as a primary outcome. And it was designed to be a 450-person trial. And so when I came to San Diego, we had a big vascular business and we were on that trial. It was one of the first trials I was involved in. And we were the lead enrollment site in the country. And it worked incredibly well for us versus angioplasty. There were no approved stents at the time for vascular disease. But despite that, it got shelved because they weren't going to meet their endpoint. And for years, that device was never approved for vascular use until the intracoil, which is no longer on the market, got approved as an equivalent to angioplasty patency-wise. And it showed equivalency to angioplasty without any worse outcomes clinically. And they got it approved based on that. And Gore, one or two people at Gore, with my prodding, because I was like, you know, this thing really works. You've got to get it approved, resurrected the trial. And that's how I got it. ended up getting involved because the original PI um, had left Baptist and Gary Becker and was, uh, you know, doing other things. 
And the FDA ended up approving the trial based on the half the results, half the patients they uh, initially planned on enrolling. So it's, you know, the whole development of devices and, and how they start and how they end is really sometimes very serendipitous and full of fits and starts and luck and timing. And to me, it's quite a fascinating sort of topic in that regard. It really requires people with vision and people recognizing we've got something here because I think it's the rule, not the exception that it's hard. Yes. Yes. It's hard to get it through you know, all of all of the regulatory agencies. It's hard to get it through maybe the processes at different institutions or even in companies. So it takes people with vision and who will not let something go to get these things that are life-saving, that are life-changing available to patients. And so to go back to the, you know, the question that sort of sparked you on this tangent, which I thought was really a very good one, is this realization that it doesn't have to be either or. Like we can do things for the good of patients, but we can also get credit for our intellectual property and, and what we put in here. And a lot of the trainees don't really get any education around how to work with the industry. And you, I think, are emblematic of having done it really well and also um, having started very early, you know, getting in as a trainee and seeing kind of where these things can go. What advice would you give to trainees today who are wondering, you know, is it ethical? You know, how do I do it? What What are the ways that I integrate my career? Yeah, that can be a tough issue. You know, I think part of it is just where is your passion in the field and finding a niche where you have a real passion and have the clinical volume in that area to be able to to do things. I mean, it became clear to me when I left daughter that I wasn't going to be doing a lot of high volume tips research anymore because I wasn't in an institution where we did a lot of tips, right? So my goal was to do peripheral arterial work and we had a high volume of that and still do. So that, you know, sets the tone. So one, you have to have the right clinical patient population, clinical volume and the passion for it. It takes extra work, right? My wife would say, I'm not very good at controlling how much time I put into my career. So the work-life balance thing will definitely get messed up if you decide you want to be an innovator. You can't just sort of do it part-time and hope it's going to work. And, you know, maybe that's something we're losing a little bit these days, I, I think. You know, you have to let that passion take over and drive you to do more than you would otherwise do because you don't have to do it, right? You don't, you don't have to collect data or do clinical research in your practice. Even in academics, you don't have to do a lot of it unless you want to. So, uh, you know, that's the first part. I think the second part is sort of developing an expertise in an area that will be recognized by industry that you'd be valuable to them as a consultant or uh, in some way. And then it's a relationship thing. You know, it's uh, developing relationships with people, them starting to trust you that your advice is valuable, trust that you're not only in it for the finances or only in it for fame and fortune, uh, that you're in it for something that's going to benefit everybody. I, I think that's part of it. So it's a, it's a multi pronged thing. And it's clearly not for everybody. I mean, I, you know, our, we don't have a research program right now in our practice because we started doing stroke, which takes a lot of time and effort. And there really wasn't the time left to do it anymore in our practice. And you need to have the time to do it and, and dedicate your time to it. Otherwise, uh, it'll just fail. Is that a fair answer? I think that is. I think that's a fair answer. What are your thoughts on this? You know, too. You know, I was somebody where, you know, working with industry was almost like a four-letter word. I'm very idealistic. And so I had this, you know, sense that, 
you could not be pure and do research and have these conflicts. But I have since grown and learned that, you know, we can manage conflicts of interest and that, you know, my overall goal, which is to advance our field of interventional radiology in any way that I can, can be supported through these collaborations with industry that many times they are aligned with us in terms of our uh, values and our priorities. And so I've sought out opportunities or maybe they've been given to me and I have supported their development as ones that allow me to reach these goals. So I just, I see your story as being one of just like these early times when this was done very well. And you mentioned John Abley, who I think is a genius. No question. Yeah. He founded um, or was one of the founders of Boston Scientific. He is still alive. And um, whenever I talk with him, I have to brush up because he's like 10 steps ahead of me. The guy's just so brilliant. And I think, you know, to recognize the fact that it's not just the physicians, it's not just, you know, there were people in business, there were all kinds of people that came together to make this happen. Like you mentioned, it's a lot of, about a collaborative kind of movement, which where I think that's where magic is, right? Where it's not just one person saying, I'm going to go do this, you know? Yeah. Nothing I did was just me in any way, shape or form. You know, there was Hans and Barry in the lab doing a lot of this work. There was Japanese research fellow who did a lot of the work on the initial swine work. There was the fellow that went to daughter the year I left who completed the initial tips, patency stuff in humans. You know, it, it's all collaborative. But and I think the conflict of interest thing is real. And and I think there are certainly times where you have to stop yourself and say, am I doing the right thing by enrolling this patient in this trial? Or am I doing the right thing by using this device in this patient? But I think we sort of have that every day in interventional, whether you're doing research or not, right? It's, uh, well, this is the cool new device. I want to use it. I, you know, uh, I want to treat this PE with this giant aspiration device. I don't know that we know what the right answer there is yet. So we got to be a little, you know, we got to always question ourselves. And I, and I think that's almost every day in our field, you know, and I think some of the people that I work with, Dr. Ponick, Gooding, you know, we, we, we think about that and I, you know, that question gets asked almost out loud sometimes, but it's sort of without saying at this. So, I, you know, that may go, it's almost a little easier when you're on a research trial with all the the inclusion and exclusion criteria and the and the and the, most of that being thought out before the trial ever goes forward in terms of doing clinical research. Venture research is a little different, but people have thought about that and tried to make it ethical because they've got to get it through an IRB and they've got to get it approved by a lot of people to actually enroll. Back when we did some of this stuff, I think people probably would have thought it was unethical. <laughs> and uh and we didn't think about that so much. I think there's a lot more thought process that goes into that these days, especially in terms of disadvantaged patients and uh, are we treating them appropriately and, and things like that. And that's come a long way since I was in my early career and probably for the better. But I almost think it's easier to cross that line, not in doing research in our daily practice. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, talking about the collaboration and kind of, you know, being together to make these decisions and also, um, to, you know, realize some of these um, innovations. You mentioned Barry Ushida, and uh, Ushida is a, a technologist, an extraordinary technologist at the at our Institute. And I just wanted to hear what it was like to work with him. He uh, recently, um, in the past several years, uh, retired, so he's no longer there. But I did get to meet him when I was there interviewing people and um, seemed like a really cool guy. And I wanted to hear what he was like. Well, Barry was just the, sort of a rock <laughs> in the daughter lab. 
He was even keeled, supportive, kind, sort of always there and incredibly knowledgeable, certainly about doing animal work, taking care of the animals, you know, making those things work. And he worked with people from multiple different departments in the daughter lab, and he always seemed to find a way to get along with everybody. I mean, he was just a kind, caring, capable guy that everybody could lean on. And that's part of what made that time so great for me as an early interventionalist was, you know, Hans was sort of the same way, you know, tinkering in the lab, building things for us. Joseph was an incredibly kind mentor. I mean, uh, you know, I'll be honest, I came out of UCSF a little disillusioned, right? I, I came out of a place with incredibly talented, huge ecos that had very little time for residents, <laughs> not just in interventional radiology, but just across the board. And I was sort of not sure I wanted to have anything to do with academics after being at UCSF. And OHSU was a very different place. Uh, and the starting of the Daughter Institute was a very exciting time to be in academics, and it changed my whole approach because of Fred and because of Joseph and because of Barry. Those kind of people really have an impact. So I think, you know, the people you meet along the way that are your mentors, Barry, I would classify as one of my mentors. You know, he was a technologist, but a mentor. I mean, in fact, there was a, tech, a daughter's original scrub tech who was there in his 60s when I was there, was scrubbing cases by himself doing stuff in, in the neuro department. And he would scrub with us occasionally as a scrub tech. And as a fellow, if he liked you and you were doing, trying hard and having a hard time and the attending was in the back of the room watching, you know, and you're trying to catheterize an SMA or something and having a hard time, he'd just sort of whisper, you know, take your hands off the catheter. <laughs> and then all of a sudden the catheter would be in the SMA, you know. So there, there were some incredibly supportive, kind people at Daughter like that that I think had a real good impact on my career. That's awesome. I always talk about IR as a team sport. You know, we can't do anything without a nurse and a technologist. Yeah. And so it really started out that way. Yeah. No. And and I think it's largely still that way. I mean, I, I think the higher end, you know, places with a lot of incredibly talented, large egos are sort of set in their ways a little bit more. It may be, it was a great time to go up there because it was just getting going with some funding. And Joseph had sort of been doing his own thing without a lot of help for a while. And then we all had a bunch of people there that sort of coalesced together. It was a great time to be there. Do you have any funny stories that you remember working there? Especially, I can't imagine doing all this research on swine and not having a... You know, well, the Zeev Haskell uh, trying to wrestle a swine to put them to sleep on his own is is a great picture in my head. I <laughs> Picturing uh, Ziv doing that is, is great. But, you know, we didn't have a lot of trouble with the animals because they had it down, you know. So I, I would come over to the lab. The animal would be anesthetized on the table, the jugular vein accessed. All I had to do was put in the device, you know. And then most of the time, the portal vein would be accessed because Barry could do all of that all on his own, you know. So, uh, or the research fellow, you know, there was a big connection with Japan. Joseph was a pretty famous guy in Japan. And there were research fellows, always two, two research fellows from Japan at a time, maybe three, coming from major institutions in Japan to the daughter lab. And some of those people are very important in Japan now. Kimi Kichikawa was one of my research fellows when I was there, and he's, you know, one of the premier interventionalists in Japan at this time. And so uh, we had that help as well. It, it was an interesting dynamic. I will say it was a little bit funny, and this, this I always found a little bit funny because of the difference between Japanese culture and U.S. culture at the time. You know, Japanese culture was fairly feudal. You know, uh, you basically were told what you were to do. 
And I was a Berkeley kid who wanted everybody to flourish and do what they wanted to do, you know? Um, and so I would go up to these guys who would come in and, you know, and say, well, what do you want to do in the lab? And they would say, whatever you want me to do, Dr. Saxon's son, you know? And I'd say, no, I want to know what you want to do. I want to do what you want to tell me to do, Dr. Saxon's son. I could barely get them to tell me what they wanted to do. It was, uh, I found that kind of an interesting cultural clash, but uh, they always did a great job. Uh, and then when I got to go back to Japan and visit some of them, they bought me a scotch. So that was always fun. But uh, <laughs> no, I mean, the daughter stories are legion, you know, daughter got rescued off the mountain, never checked the weather, go try and climb Mount Hood and get caught in storms. And, you know, he, he was a crazy genius, definitely a genius. But the stories were legion. That that mountain serves as the backdrop of a lot of the big stories, like people almost getting stranded yeah. on the mountain. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite stories that uh, that I was before I got there, but was sort of emblematic of daughter and the sort of cowboy nature of interventional even before I got there was, uh, you know, John Porter was had trained with uh, Dave Saviston, you know, the decade with Dave for surgical training. He was a by the book, hard ass vascular surgeon who edited the the yearbook of vascular surgery for 20 years or 30 years. Very smart guy, but, you know, kind of by the book. And daughter drove him nuts as a junior, you know, junior lead in vascular surgery. And the first renal angioplasty that daughter did, there was a patient who came in who had like the perfect non-osteal lesion. And he was looking at morning conference at the angiogram they had done on the patient. And the patient was supposed to go off to, it was going off to the OR that morning to get a renal bypass. And he stopped the patient at the door of the OR and said, if they operate on you, it's malpractice. I can do this without an operation and took the patient back to the angio suite. I mean, there was some pretty serious stuff that went on back in those days <laughs> in terms of just, you know, aggressive uh, approaches to things. So daughter was a little crazy, incredible talent, you know, dreamt up everything we're doing, um, but also a little crazy. He got Joseph's kids rescued off of Mount Hood with him one night and had to spin in an ice cave, you know. <laughs> so those are the stories you remember from that place. It was kind of before my time, but they're they're quite quite intense. I mean, um, we, we all hear about these like insane stories and like the crazy Charlie and the pictures on Life magazine where, you know, they really depict him in this way. You know, we credit Charles Daughter as being the father of interventional, but I'm glad we're spending an, a lot of time talking about Yosef Resch because he and Daughter worked side by side. And if one was kind of the dreamer, the other one was the doer. Tell us more about that. Well, so Joseph was a very hard worker, very talented guy. He was on the Czech Olympic volleyball team, as the story goes. He was an athlete. He was in the Czech army. He was let out to come do a fellowship with daughter for a year. I think it was in 68 from Czechoslovakia uh, with his daughter. And then eventually was able to get his wife and son out. But, and that's when he went and did the year at UCLA and then went back up to daughter. But, you know, he published, I think, 465 papers or 500 papers. Joseph was an unassuming guy. So here's a great story about Joseph that I found very amusing. Porter ran this vascular surgery conference every Saturday where most of the vascular surgeons from town would come and he would berate his residents and fellows for three hours, you know, <laughs> and we would show films and he would be fairly nice to us because we we're a different department. But he was, you know, pretty aggressive guy. I mean, he, he sat up there and, you know, huge man um, and uh, was very aggressive and and there was a case where they were trying to figure out the anatomy of the portal system, I think it was, and 
And Joseph very unassumingly says, uh, well, you could do a splenoportogram and put a needle in the spleen and inject it, you know, in a, in a very calm way. And Porter goes off on how dangerous that is, how crazy it is. And, he, and Joseph very quietly says, well, in my experience, it's not that dangerous if you do it quickly and carefully. And, and, and Porter's like, how do you know that? And he goes, well, I've done 1,700. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was stuff like that. I mean, we were trying to take, I remember when I was a fellow and Joseph came over and he didn't attend a whole lot by the time I got there, but he was attending a case I was doing at the VA. And here's a pretty funny story. So I'm doing this case and we're trying to take this clot out of a central vein. And he says, well, why don't we put a big sheath in and put an occlusion balloon distal to it and pull really hard and just pull the clot out through the sheath. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'll try anything you tell me to try. But he was dressed in a suit and tie and a white coat and didn't get scrubs on. And I'm doing this case and I put this big occlusion balloon in and he goes, well, pull really hard. And I pulled really hard and he was standing right behind me and I pulled an entire ream of blood and blood clot out that went flying over my shoulder all over Joseph's tie and shirt. <laughs> I was mortified. <laughs> I was just like, what have I done? And he just looked at me very pleasantly said, well, let's look and see how it turned out. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was no reprimand, you know, didn't reprimand me, yeah. nothing. You know, he was just the kindest person, you know, but he tore my writing to shreds, which was uh, interesting as well, because he, you know, English was a second language for him. So, uh, you know, my Writing deserved some editing for sure. And, uh, you know, but he would, it was very funny because he would tear it to shreds, but he wouldn't give me constructive criticism. It would be like all crossed out with written in the corner, think logically, you know, explanation <laughs> point. <laughs> I'd be like, uh, what do I do with that? You know, <laughs> be uh, smarter. <laughs> be smarter. Yeah. <laughs> you can do better. You know? <laughs> okay. Wow. Wow. Um, so uh, that's, he was, he was great. That's uh, awesome. He, you know, yeah, he really was the, you know, meat of that daughter rush relationship. You know, for the uh, the trainees, they probably recognize these names like Rush and Ushida from, you know, we open the tip set, right? And a lot of times that's, I think, how our trainees get introduced to history. So that's why I think this is just such a fantastic opportunity. And you knew a lot of the players, some of whom have passed on, but some are, are still around. You know, Ernie Ring, um, such an amazing uh, force for doing a lot of the, the early tips with LaBerge. And you had like a front row seat to that. And I can imagine that would have been intense for them. I mean, the whole concept of doing a tips to me is one of the most, I don't know, aggressive and... Oh, it was very intense. Just amazing things to try yeah to try to even imagine that you would do like you know a leap of faith i'm going to stab from one vein to another vein and i'm going to do this thing that people normally do you know open like can you comment about just that sort of bravado and how it came from resh and then translated to the ucsf team yeah i think it really started when the wall stent came along joseph was doing some clinically with z stents but they kinked they weren't really designed for this. You know, they tried to design a thing called the spiral Z stent that wouldn't kink. That was a little bit better, but really didn't work well. And then, you know, the concept with these first few patients done in Germany with Palmas and Richter. And then it was really, I think, Katzen and the guys at Baptist and Ernie and the team at UCSF that did the initial 100, 150 patients to show that you could do this relatively safely. And Ernie was one of these guys that was just, he would come in and just find things and make it work very, very quickly and easily when others would struggle. 
But it was a struggle early on, I think, for tips. I mean, I wasn't, you know, as a resident, I was only a few months on the service. So it's not like I got to see a ton of this. But I did do some research with Gene on it. And it, you know, some of the early tips cases were six, seven hours long, you know, really hard to do, a lot of time trying to find the portal vein, learning how to find the portal vein, learning how to do wedged hepatic venography and localize the portal vein. The idea of using an occlusion balloon and CO2 didn't come till I was doing tips as an attending. I think, you know, we were trying to do it with contrast and it would stain everything. You couldn't see anything. I remember early on when I got to daughter, I was pretty good at imaging, having trained at UCSF and used ultrasound for a lot of things. And nobody at daughter was puncturing the jugular vein with ultrasound. You know, they're just poking away, trying to get into the jugular vein. And Fred Keller was great. Rob Barton, technically great. But I remember a case we were doing with the patient had the football helmet on and the Blakemore tube down and they're bleeding to death and they're hypotensive and the jugular vein's flat, you know, and they're trying to stick this jugular vein and they can't get in. And, you know, we're spending an hour sticking the femoral vein, putting a catheter up in the jugular vein so you can stick the femoral vein. <laughs> and I remember going to Fred and saying, you know, do you mind if I bring an ultrasound machine in here for the next one? Maybe we could use that to see the jugular vein and stick it. You know, I mean, it was that kind of time where everybody was just trying to figure out how to do this safely, faster, better. And there were certainly some disasters getting into the replaced right hepatic artery and not recognizing it and dilating it with a 10 French sheath and having the patient bleed out. We all, the first time somebody did that and reported it, everybody went, oh my God, we got to watch out for that. You know, <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, so there, you know, it was, uh, it was definitely difficult for these people. Uh, you know, Ring and Katzen are brilliant technicians uh, and interventionalists with tremendous experience. And, and I think they had a lot to do with pushing the field forward to make it safe clinically, figuring out how to do it. But, you know, there were the littlest things. I remember, I don't know if people know Bob Curlin well, but... Bob was an attending at UCSF and then in private practice here. He's really the part of the reason I ended up in San Diego because I was recruited to take his place before Don Bonnet got a hold of me, took me to the North County because we were residents together. But Bob always tells the residents and fellows when I'm around him or I go back to UCSF that the, the smartest thing I ever taught him, which was something Joseph taught me, was to look at the arrow on the cannula on the tip set to decide what hepatic vein you're in. Because if it's pointing posteriorly, you're in the right hepatic vein. If it's pointing anteriorly at all, you're probably in the middle hepatic vein. And it's pretty hard to tell on AP flora which one you're looking at. But if you look at the arrow on the back of the cannula, you know. Nobody knew that. You know, it was sort of one of these things that disseminated and made the procedure a lot easier. Because if you're in the middle hepatic vein and trying to puncture anteriorly, you're not going to get anywhere, right? So it, all of that was being figured out, you know, and, and by trial and error, a lot of trial and error. Yeah, it was exciting. It was, it, the patients were sick, sick, sick. You know, we do a lot of tips for ascites these days. We didn't do any tips for ascites back then. It was all for people who are bleeding to death. I mean, that that's kind of like what it is for a lot of IR, right? We're, we are the option of last resort. And so when you have a patient population uh, like those needing a tips for uncontrolled variceal bleeding, Everyone else is going, not it. And you have even this imperfect solution that requires so much huspa to put in. I mean, you're stabbing blindly to find this other vein and then you're dilating up. It seems like it was kind of the perfect alignment of factors to allow this to grow and develop together with people who are willing to do that. Yeah. Well, and, and figuring out how to make it work better. I remember when we were looking at TIPS patency, you know, we did, a, I think we wrote a paper for RSNN, like 120 patients on TIPS patency. And one of the things I realized was some of our patients just kept bleeding even after the TIPS was in. 
you know, and, and there was a big argument, you know, once the tips is in, you don't need to embolize the varices, right? Because you've lowered the pressure. So why would you embolize the varices? You know, and so we looked at those patients and, and our group looked at it and realized that, well, if they've got coagulopathic and have these giant varices and they're still there and the pressure's not diminished completely, they may just keep bleeding because the sclerotherapy didn't work. So we started embolizing everybody. I remember arguing with Ernie about that as a junior faculty guy because he was like, ah, you don't need to do that. I was like, I think you do. <laughs> you know, so all of that kind of stuff was just sort of trial and error and like, you know, okay, yeah, this let's just do that. So, I mean, I still do that to this day, but people debate whether you need to do that. So, yeah, I think it, it it's evolved a lot, right? There's been a lot of clinical research way past my time in working on tips that has laid out a lot of where it's safe, where it isn't safe, what the downsides are. And that work's been done by a lot of people since that time. Yeah. And procedurally, it's gotten shorter, right? You know, when I was a trainee is when we were starting to use intravascular ultrasound and do dips. And Hamid Aryafar was kind of leading the the way, um, you know, at UCSD for us locally and advancing that. But a lot of the same things that you talk about where, you know, inadvertently puncturing an artery or trying to learn where you are, trial and error, like that happened there too. And I think anytime you try to evolve any type of procedure that we do, there's going to be that learning process. And sometimes it's small consequences and sometimes they can be catastrophic. How, how did you deal with that sort of emotionally? It must have been difficult also. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the Really great things about ha being part of that early part of interventional for me and all the people of my generation, us old folk now, I guess I'm not really that old, but there was a lot of that that went on where you were doing things that were in patients that had no other alternative. They were going to maybe die if you didn't embolize this, or they were going to die if you didn't do a tip. So they were going to, you know, the outcomes were if you didn't fix this aneurysm, they were not an operative patient. Uh, you know, let's try this homemade device. And I think it gave us a lot of comfort with our ability to get out of trouble <laughs> um, that maybe fellows and residents these days don't have because they haven't gotten into nearly as much trouble as we all did. <laughs> I mean, the original Palma stents, right, weren't mounted on a balloon. You had to crimp them onto the balloon and then push it to get it to where you wanted to go. And, you know, losing that thing off the balloon inside the patient was something everybody experienced at least once and trying to deal with that. Or having a wall stent, the second wall stent you put in doing a tips, pop out watermelon seed into the right atrium on the wire and trying to figure out how to get it out. You know, that kind of stuff we all dealt with. <laughs> and so I think it gives you, you know, a lot of tools and tricks in your bag that help you get out of trouble and make you a little bit more comfortable doing stuff you've not had a lot of comfort doing, like us evolving into treating stroke as interventional radiologists, right? Uh, you know, it's a big deal. On the other hand, you know, we all, in my practice, we all have done it a bit over the whole course of our career when somebody came in who was 30 years old having a big stroke and the neurologist said, hey, do something about this, you know, can you do anything? So we would try, right? A little TPA or a little this or a little urokinase back in the day. And sometimes it would work and sometimes it wouldn't, and it would be kind of disastrous, but you didn't really have a choice. So I think that gets you a little more comfort in feeling okay about taking those risks. But yeah, it, it's hard when it goes bad, right? It's really hard when it goes bad because you take it to heart. But that's, I don't know, that's the addictive part. For, for adrenaline junkies like me who love to ski and scuba dive and used to ride horses and <laughs> jump horses, and you know, I was in a total adrenaline junkie my whole life, that's part of the appeal of the field. 
I mean, a, a funny story about Ernie Ring to, to, that goes to that. So Ernie, you know, loved interventional with a passion, right? And I, in the first year of my marriage, my wife tore her knee to shreds like six months or a year into our marriage when we went skiing. And I was wandering around while she was getting this open operation, wandered over to IR and was chatting with Ernie as a fourth year resident, I guess I was. And Ernie was uh, like, what are you doing going skiing? I mean, if you're going to be an interventionalist, what do you need with skiing? Who needs that? There's enough adrenaline here, you know? <laughs> you know? I mean, what a waste of time, you know? <laughs> and that was sort of his attitude, you know? Uh, so uh, there is that addictive nature of anything that's intermittently positive re re reinforcing, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we can all attest to that. And just the addictive nature of being able to help somebody so profoundly with something that sends them home with a Band-Aid. I mean, that's it's just an intoxicatingly amazing field. And I, I appreciate all that you do and all that um, those before you and after you have done to push this field forward. So with the innovations that you were able to help usher in, like partially covering the stent, you were able to solve the problem of occlusion, which you trace back to bile. Bile is very thrombogenic, right? But there's still the problem of hepatic encephalopathy that plagues a lot of us in tips. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts on how much progress we've made since the early days and if you've had thoughts around, you know, how we could be doing better. Thinking of myself as a tinker or plumber, I'm not very good at the medical side of this, but I will say some of the evolution of the devices has helped, right? Because now we have a device that we can put in a lot smaller and dilate up later. So I think that's helpful. All of the original Viators or wall stents eventually got up to their full maximum diameter. So there was always this debate, oh, well, we're going to put in a 12 and dilate it to 10, but it's going to get to 12 or an 8 and dilate it to, you know, a 10 and dilate it to 8, but it's going to get to 10. Now that you have something that's balloon expandable up, I think that helps us sort of tailor the approach to the given patient. And the Development of ways of narrowing tips when they do get encephalopathy helps from a from an IR standpoint. So we have a few things we can do, but I think it really comes down to patient selection. I mean, that, there's there's no way to avoid it in somebody whose liver is is so bad off if they have a history of encephalopathy, if their melt score is too high, if their their liver is just not working well enough to deal with those toxins. I don't think we have a way as an IR to fix that. Now, clearly medicine and the development of better medications and a better understanding of exactly what it is that's causing the encephalopathy on the brain and ways of binding those toxins with medications or making the brain more tolerant of those toxins with medications would be a wonderful improvement uh, of healthcare. And I don't really know what's going on in that area. You might know better than me. I would love to see that, you know, because we're using drugs that were, the drugs we use now are the same drugs that were available when I was starting to do tips in my early career. So there's not a lot of medication advancement in treating encephalopathy that I can see. You know, there's maybe one or two new drugs that sort of get used, but, you know, neomycin and things like that. But, you know, I, I, don't, I don't see a huge advancement there. I, I wish there was a greater advancement there. So I think for us, we just have to really be careful about who we do the procedure in because, you know, there are other medical, you know, bandings a lot better than it used to be. There are ways to deal with varices a lot better than uh, they were before. Making sure we're doing it in somebody who really needs it, I guess, is, is sort of what we need to do, you know, or that there's no alternative to treat them. I mean, I think some of the data on 
doing it earlier than later for ascites is pretty compelling. And we, but we rarely get to those patients earlier than later. Usually we get to them because they're coming for paracentesis every week. Um, and that's when we get aware of them. So maybe a little more outreach and education to the community on early tips in ascites. And a lot of the data that's there would be helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think? <laughs> I'd be curious well, on your... No, I, I actually, I think that's such a good point. The thing that you said really, which is knowing when to hold them. And I think that's the hallmark of a truly good interventionalist. And it's something that you gain with time. And when you know when to not do procedures, you keep patients safe, you build trust with your colleagues, both inside and outside of IR. It's one of the most powerful things that you can do. I think those who kind of leave their their training and get out there and just want to attack every challenge um, with the same gusto and don't realize that not everything can be solved with a catheter um, end up kind of undermining their own worth and uh, in some cases undermining the value of the field in the eyes of our referring clinicians. So I think that's very important. I do think also there's stigma. There's stigma around patients with liver disease. You know, we've only recently seen advances in the treatment of liver cancer, you know, real big ones that are outside of IR. And I think the same thing kind of pours over into the encephalopathy and portal hypertension and that kind of stuff. It's not a place where a lot of innovation is happening in the same ways as it's happening for breast cancer, lung cancer, or, you know, other diabetes or diseases like that. So yeah, maybe it's an opportunity. Yeah. I mean, it tends to be an area where there's, you know, sort of underfunded people who are going to get to that point, don't necessarily have good insurance and, and all of that. I think your point about knowing when to say no is really important. I mean, in mentoring our new colleagues in our practice and, you know, residents or fellows that I talk to, it's really important when you first get somewhere to hit a lot of base hits. Just do a good job, be available, consult, be supportive, be affable and available. And that's sort of the biggest thing right off the bat. You take one swing at something that's maybe a little out of bounds and it goes awry, that's what everybody's going to remember in your first year. And so I, I, you know, senior guys in our practice are quick to go to the junior guys in our practice when something really controversial comes up and say, well, let me take care of it because I don't want them to remember you having had a bad case your first three months here, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, because it, it makes a huge difference. Uh, you know, another story that I'll never forget and, and didn't end up ruining my relationship with people, but one of the first trial we got on when I got here in clinical research with her, uh, as soon as I got to San Diego was a carotid stent trial, the carotid wall stent trial, uh, because I had done some of the original carotid stents up at Daughter with Stan Barnwell, the neurointerventionalist up there. And we got asked to consider doing a carotid stent on a woman who had an occluded carotid on one side and a recurrent stenosis and radiation in the neck on the other side with minimal hyperplastic tissue and, you know, uh, just a setup for a disaster. And it turned out she was on the board of the hospital at the time. <laughs> so I'd been there six months. Both Ponick, I, and the vascular surgeon went up and tried to ask the patient to go to an expert who'd done more carotid stents elsewhere because I tried to get out of this case because I knew it was not going to be a good situation. And she insisted that we treat her. And it turned out that she had been on heparin in the hospital for a week and a half and when we put the stent in, it clotted on the table, and she had developed heparin-associated thrombocytopenia um, and clotted everything. And it was, you know, just this horrible situation. And I never forgot it. It made a major impact on me, and she ended up with a big stroke and a you know, bad outcome. And you know, it wasn't our fault, per se, <laughs> but 
you know, obviously that made a big impact uh, in the first six months of my practice that I spent a fair amount of time trying to overcome. So uh, that was a lesson learned. Really couldn't avoid it. I tried hard to avoid it, but, but you know, I, I think that it has nothing to do with tips, but it's an important thing for people to hear. You know, be real careful when you start your practice to, you know, and there's all sorts of things you can try when nobody has an option that, you know, except for you, that's fine. Nobody's going to hold you responsible for a bad outcome in those circumstances. But in the cases where you don't have to do it, be careful early on. I think I think we've all had this times where we felt coerced. And um, there's this sort of thing in, in the culture of medicine where maybe referring physicians are less likely to want to coerce a surgeon because there's the sanctity of, of the scalpel. But you know what? You go through, there's a Band-Aid. It's minimally invasive. Just go do it. Like, what harm can it do? And it can do a lot of harm. And so we all have these stories that just scar us where we felt pushed in a direction that that we weren't entirely comfortable to pursue. And lo and behold, it didn't turn out, you know, like this beautiful outcome that they had wanted. And you wonder, you go back and say, should I have, you know, stuck to my guns? And the, you know, the hallmark of your story where you said it was in the first six months of my practice, you know, for me, it was also very early in my practice where you're trying to be available, you're trying to be helpful. And when they go, but they have no other choice, sometimes the answer is, and this is also not a choice. You know, this is also not the solution. Um, and that's really hard to do. This has been such a fun conversation to have with you. You know, I, I think that as somebody who cares deeply about the trainees coming up and their experiences and also very much about this field, I think that your story really speaks to all the parts of why we go into IR and and why we re remain passionate about it and how it's a field that's in constant evolution. Do you have any last thoughts that you want to share with the audience? You know, no, not really. I mean, I, I think that's it. It's, it is a field that's addicting. It's been an incredible ride for me. I've been incredibly lucky to have met and worked with a lot of the people I met and worked with that we talked about during this podcast. Um, they had major impacts on my career. I think that's one of the things I love about the field is the collegial nature of this field, the people that tend to gravitate to it tend to be really supportive of each other. You know, whatever competitions Zeev and I maybe had, we're good friends and, and uh, his wife and my wife are good friends and we never see each other except at meetings. But, you know, when we get together, it's always great. So, you know, I, I think that that's part of this field, unlike some other fields, you know, that we may compete with uh, for uh, turf and things like that. It, it, there's a consistent theme amongst interventionalists of people I actually like interventionalists. And, uh, you know, a lot of doctors can be hard to be around. But as a whole, this field sort of fosters that innovative, caring sort of approach. And I've been very lucky to be a part of it. I've just had a ball to, to a great extent throughout this career. So starting to look back on it, you asking me to look back on this stuff is a little bit weird for me. So, because <laughs> I look back and I go, wow, you know, we really did a lot of stuff back then. Um, and time has really gone by, you know, my, and, and you started looking back on it and realizing that, you know, I need to call Fred Keller and say hi, because he was a great mentor to me and things like that. So I think we've covered the inspirational part of this. <laughs> and, and I think we've covered the history in a way that maybe has not been covered in this part of the field before, which I think is, it's a great 
example of serendipity in medicine, of people recognizing um, ways to fix things, and of IRs being innovative and tinkering and fixing and growing and making better and having a major impact in a pretty unusual way, tips um, that you know may have never been thought up, but yeah. was. Um, yes, creativity and it's courage. And those are the things that I think are just hallmarks of interventional radiologists. That's why I, I just have valued this opportunity to talk to you about this so much. So thank you so much, uh, Richard Saxon, for your stories about the early days of TIPS and you as a trainee during that time and your contributions um, to the literature and to helping us understand how to do this in a way that will keep these tips open longer. And also um, thanks to Backtable for this platform on which to share these stories. It's just a really great opportunity to put them down for other people to enjoy. And you know, this is now, but we're making history every day. We're making um, the future of IR all together. And so it's an, it's an awesome platform to watch that all grow. So thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dong, Michael Barraza, Jacob Fleming, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 